you know, if you're dogmatic and if you're full of hubris and you think that the state of the union is what you uh, perceived a month ago, two months ago, whatever, and you don't adapt to the change of the environment or what you see in front of you, uh, that could be deadly. That could be deadly. You're listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. Dogma is deadly and leaders keep it real. That was the voice of Kevin Chin, the CEO and founder of Arowana, who shares what impact means to him, how culture eats numbers for breakfast, and the importance of not letting your hubris get in the way of long-term growth. So let's give it up for the real Kevin Chin. Enjoy. Started here on the Kevin Show. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome back, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining me today is Kevin Chin, the founder and CEO of Arowana. Kevin, thanks for being with us today. Good to see you. So, Kev, uh, your company, Arowana, placed top 10 this year on 2020's Real Leaders Impact Awards. What does impact mean to you? Yeah, well, firstly, I've, I've got to say, uh, in, in all candor, uh, I was very surprised, but uh, extremely honored uh, to place in the top 10. And, you know, kudos to the team, uh, Ben and Stacy in particular, for, um, for what they've done. Uh, I, I guess, you know, impact to me is about uh, transforming lives and, you uh, you know, enabling uh, week and, you know, that there's, there's still a lot of poverty here. So mm. impact to me is uh, transforming lives by enabling uh, people and talents, you know, out there to, to really take advantage of opportunities that they otherwise would not have. Uh, so it's all about enablement, uh, if you will. And that's, so that's the point. is this impact now it's embedded into your organization, obviously, uh, how are you enabling these organizations to reach their full potential and scale their own impact? Yeah, well, our, uh, our mantra is, uh, grow companies, grow people, grow value. And, uh, you know, I've, I've run numerous businesses and, um, you know, have, uh, uh, a lot of experience in terms of that for you know a company is 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 a living organism it's 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 a body of people ultimately and for a company to grow its people must grow and so we're very focused in terms of our businesses uh, as to how we help our people scale themselves up and in the process you know help the company to to scale and you know, by doing that and, and doing that in a sustainable manner, uh, that's that's how, you know, we feel that we enable impact to be, you know, to, to manifest. Uh, maybe break down for our audience uh, some of the moments in your own career. I think it's unique. You know, sometimes we'll have CEOs, but not CEOs. All CEOs are founders of their organizations. Could you maybe explain to our audience your entrepreneurial career and some of the moments that really led up to this idea of Arowana? Yeah, uh, that's actually that's that's pretty well defined in my mind. So uh, the first moment would have been 
leaving, you know, leaving the security of employment and starting uh, starting an ice cream business, which was inspired by reading uh, Ben and Jerry's you know, story. And uh, this was back in 2003. And, you know, coming out of the, the, the finance world, you know, I thought I knew business and uh, I started this ice cream business with my best friend. And, you know, very rapidly within, I'd say, 30 to 40 days, I realized how much I didn't know about business and the amount of resilience that you needed to have or you need to have. And, you know, entrepreneurs would know this. Uh, in order to start a business and in order to scale a business uh, because, you know, pretty much everything goes against you. Um, and uh, so that was that was one checkpoint. Um, that was a massive learning experience or relearning experience. And then the second one would have been, uh, you know, really the genesis of Arowana, which was um, an AI software company in 2007 that, uh, I took over with, uh, sorry, 2004 that I took over with a, with a consortium. It wasn't doing well. It had six weeks of cash to survive. Uh, so uh, I, I parachuted in. I went on hands-on as the CFO uh, with, you know, fellow leaders. And thankfully, we were able to salvage and rescue the business um, over the course of nine months. And then we grew it. We grew it um, into the UK, the US, Asia, uh, before selling it to Oracle, you know, about six weeks after Lehman Brothers. And that was, um, that, that was everything compressed into a four-year period where we made mistakes. You know, we grew too fast. We were growing at 100% plus per annum for a couple of years. Uh, uh, it was a turnaround initially. Then it became a, you know, hyperscale type of business. Uh, and again, that was just um, transformational from my own sort of learning perspective as well. Uh, Kev, I, I like this. Let's let's break this down a little bit then, if we can, if you let me. Sure. Uh, resilience uh, is it? You know, when you say that, it, it, obviously there might be some external pressure. There might be. Uh, you said you left the security of your job. Stakes are high. You have to make a living. Uh, when you're a founder, you're isolated. Maybe share with our audience who are are similar listening to this some of the some of the struggles and some of the thoughts you were having in your head during this process. Yeah, well, I was I was just talking to Stacy before this, and and she's an entrepreneur entrepreneur herself that's had an exit, and uh, I was saying that in the last 24 hours, I've had one of those you know lonely entrepreneurial moments where you feel that uh, everything's kind of going against you, and um, uh, no one's you know no one's uh, kind of stepping up you know to the plate to to help. Uh, so you know that that feels frustrating. Uh, uh, I, I'd say that's 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 a normal feeling, and it and it's part of growth. You know, growth doesn't happen without discomfort. Uh, and the entrepreneurial journey and a growth journey are, are, are kind of intertwined. Uh, and in order to grow, you've got to have struggles and challenges. And in order to achieve your growth goals, you've got to have the resilience to overcome those struggles and challenges. So I was just talking to 
a fellow entrepreneur who's, who's going through some tough times at the moment uh, last week, and uh, he was asking, so you know, how do you how do you deal with all these issues and obstacles and challenges? And uh, I said to him, something I've learned, you know, really in the last two three years is to mentally adjust how I look at challenges uh, and gamify it. So just as you know, just as someone who's a gamer would play you know a game and you know you you achieve one level you achieve another level you achieve another level etc but along that journey at each level there's new challenges you know there's new enemies there's uh, new obstacles that that come out of left field uh so i I've, i guess I, I shared with him that I've, I've really learned to embrace challenges and gamify it and uh and that then, then makes it actually kind of fun. <laughs> no, no doubt. And, and, you know, speaking of the late, great Kobe Bryant, who uh, just passed away, I saw a clip the other day, Kev. It was, it, was a, it was a reporter who was talking to him about one of the games where he missed a last second shot when he was a, a rookie or you know, first year player. And instead of, you know, that's a big time shot where, you, you know, you're the player of that team. You have to make those or at least come close. And he airballed both both shots against the Jazz. And uh, what she was saying is Kobe, instead of, you know, pouting and and, you know, taking that upon himself, he says, what was the problem? My legs were tired. So what did he do? Worked on the, his strength and his legs and, and get to that to get to that next level and eventually, you know, become one of the greatest basketball players of all time. There's something about constant learning in that message. Uh, how was constant learning and humility playing a role in your initial turnaround of that software company? So humility, I think it's not a word that's well understood. And, you know, in fact, it took us some time to really uh, synthesize that uh, for our own team internally. And, you know, for, for a while, I, I think there was, there was a mindset that humility meant, you know, being meek and being in the background, you know, being uh, opaque almost as well. Uh, whereas, you know, to, to me, humility is about uh, understanding that we, we do not know everything. We, we cannot know everything. And, uh, and it's about not trying to be the smartest in the room. Uh, and so in the context of uh, Ruleburst, that software company that, uh, that we turned around and, you know, the, the first six weeks uh, was, was super challenging. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's the analog here would be parachuting into into a, a war zone that you, you just don't really know the full context and you've got to be agile you've got to be flexible in terms of your mindset and uh, dogma or hubris uh, from a mindset perspective is, is is to me the antithesis of humility and in a situation like that in fact, you know, you could apply that to to a, a, a high growth situation as well. If you know, if you're dogmatic, and if you're full of hubris, and you think that the state of the union is what you uh, perceived a month ago, two months ago, whatever, and you don't adapt to the change of the environment or what you see in front of you, 
that could be deadly. That could be deadly. Um, humility to me is, uh, is you know, the, the absence of hubris and dogma, if you will, uh, and uh, understanding that we, we don't know everything, um, and particularly in business. And that's kind of what makes it fun as well, uh, to overcome the unknown. Uh, and, you know, a key, key plank of that, and this is something we really encourage and, and instill into uh, the team, is lifelong learning. Uh, lifelong learning is essential. And particularly in this day and age where, you know, AI and machine learning are, are coming up fast and for the next decade, we're going to see that sort of proliferate and, you know, impact people's jobs. Uh, but having a mindset of lifelong learning you know, the, the human brain is so powerful. Everyone's brain is so powerful. You, you know, you can pivot to, to other fields that you may not have trained for, but present, you know, opportunities. So what's your approach when you go in? Uh, do you just ask them, hey, I'm just here to learn and understand the company. And then we're just going to have to fight through and figure out a way uh, to make this work. Uh, it's it's context dependent. Uh, so. Uh, to, to be blunt, in, in that situation with Rule Burst, uh, we knew the culture had been very complacent. Uh, you know, you, you're talking about people not turning up till after nine and leaving at three. And uh, so as, as a leadership team, we really felt that, you know, it needed a jolt. Um, and and I'm a big fan. I, you know, I read a lot of uh, sporting coach biographies, and um, you know the way they understand the context of a team and the culture of the team, and then you know they adapt how they instill leadership to that to that circumstance to achieve what they want. So yeah, in, in that context, we we actually went in with a almost like a Navy SEALs Hell Week type of approach just to jolt the culture. <laughs> nice. Well, who, I was going to ask, who do you like? Are you, like? Do you read Jocko Willink? I, I like, uh, I've read um, Urban Meyer is one of my favorite coaches. He, he talks about alignment in his, his books, uh, the Ohio State University football coach. Who, who do you listen yeah. to? What What are some takeaways from some of the books that you like? Yeah, I've, I've uh, read Urban Meyer's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, soccer, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the UK. And so reading, you know, coaches like Jose Mourinho and uh, oh, okay. Pep Guardiola uh, and, uh, you know, to some of the basketball greats, etc. in terms of coaches. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're always uh, great nuggets of uh, insight. And, you know, and, and that, that's been applied successfully in a, in a real life context. And I think there's a lot of parallels, right, between uh, how you motivate, engage, lead a, a sports team and, you know, and, and a business, um, uh, you know, a team within a business. Yeah, I really like the, the analogy of the gamifying it and, and putting that in perspective, especially for our audience and people who uh, have been involved in sports teams uh, and can kind of draw the comparison there. Uh, but l- let's stick on this, uh, this dogma, this hubris. I really like that. Um, is there a dogma and hubris 
in terms of we interview a lot of impact companies who believe that they can uh, that market driven solutions can take on socially and environmentally mental challenges. Is there a dogma and hubris in that? And what type of humility do some of us reporters, uh, uh, business owners have to have in order to say, hey, you know what? We might not know the answer. That's a very that's a very good question. That's a very deep question. Uh, getting deep today, Kev. <laughs> From my experience, yes, you know, there's uh, that there is, you know, there's an element of the the do good in in that sort of impact community, and you know, impact is is not something that uh, that has sprouted out within our the last two years. You know, we 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 got our B Corp certification back in 2018, but uh, I've, I've been involved in uh, social enterprises um, and backing social entrepreneurs for 15 years. And, you know, along, you know, I've been to uh, trips on the ground in Cambodia, uh, you know, seeing a, a mother of four kids uh, transform her family's lives uh, through a microfinance loan of $50. Uh, and, enabled her to veggie patch, which then in turn allowed her to send all the kids to school. And that was, you know, that was just, you know, profound. Um, so I've had a lot to do with the sort of impacts, you know, social community, if you will, for, for a long time now. And, you know, along the way, and, you know, every community has its, you know, has its nuances. And, and yes, there, there are some situations where uh, I don't think there are, sort of for-profit market-driven solutions. Um, and, you know, you do need to, you know, you, you do need to have a non-profit um, solution uh, in, in certain circumstances. And, you know, I'll give you one example. So I've been involved with uh, charities for disabled orphans in Southeast Asia for a while. And, you know, the nuance there is culturally... You know, in Buddhism, if you're disabled, it means you've done something bad in your past life. So disabled orphans tend to get neglected and treated like oh, worse than worse than dogs. Um, and uh, there's no funding for that. And there's no money to be made in that. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, we, we felt it was a, a worthwhile cause on our sort of foundation side or charity side to, to support. Uh, so... Yeah, so that there's there's a spectrum. Um, that being said, though, I, I think across the board, uh, there are market-driven for-profit solutions uh, that uh, that that are highly impactful. And to me, that's that for-profit element is not something to be shy about. It's something to embrace because ultimately, that's that's what drives sustainability. Uh, you know, that being said, that there is a balance. You know, you can go too far one way. And uh, and if the profit motive becomes too overt, then you know you're sacrificing something in terms of uh, the impact. Mm, okay. So in in some instances there are trade offs. In some instances there are um, ways you can implement certain solutions, whether it's um, 
a socially responsible company, environmentally responsible company, or some form of governance in there between. It's it's kind of blurry lines. You know, we can do so many interviews and interview so many different impact leaders. However, uh, everyone defines impact in a certain way. You said today, transforming lives. Uh, where someone else might uh, define it as uh, uh, recognizing impact, just like how you recognize someone in in uh, with the with the micro loan. Uh, I mean, maybe explain to us uh, like what your take is on an impact company. Like, how do you define when you're investing in one? What is an impact company versus what is a for profit company that's just solving a, a, a normal problem? Yeah, that's, again, a good question. I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Uh, so I was talking actually yesterday here with uh, some of our partners um, in the Philippines that I was I was once uh, inspired by, you know, this great impact entrepreneur in, in Australia. And he, he took me around his company and showed me his, uh, his war room. Uh, and in his war room, there was a, a huge wall. And on the wall, he had a line, a horizontal line. And above the line was the typical metrics that you would see for any for-profit business. So it was, in essence, a, a dashboard, uh, you know, number of sales, revenue, uh, profits, profit per employee, all that sort of stuff. But below the line was his impact scorecard. So how many lives was he transforming through his business? So he was in the form of, he was in the, the business of uh, financing cafes and restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, equipment, which, you know, which typically banks do not fund uh, because it's too high risk. But he developed a model uh, to enable that. And in turn, that enabled, you know, thousands of families to, you know, to, to thrive. Uh, whereas otherwise they, they wouldn't have been able to sustain their, their you know, their, their little business. Mm. Okay. So that, that still goes along the lines of that transforming lives and, and then using a measurement tool to do that. Now, is there a hubris in humans for not taking into account ecosystems and our impact on the environment and things that are not, that are things that we do not consider a life? Did you catch that? Yeah. Okay. So this this is this is very um, this is very topical and relevant for Australia, which you know we, there's there's been sure. massive bushfires and uh, and you know around the world we're seeing the impact of climate change. Uh, I, I do believe there is hubris and dogma in terms of uh, how people's attitudes towards climate change uh, uh, manifest. And you know, certainly in Australia, it's 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 almost like religion. You know, there's there's the the coal uh, black energy lobby, if you will, and and the people that are on that side, and then there's the green environmental lobby, and there are elements of both that are very dogmatic, and yeah, I'm I'm. You know, we, we definitely are very focused. So, you know, one of the areas that uh, we're building uh, in the region in Southeast Asia, out of the Philippines, is 
is an environmental impact business that will help solve, you know, the the one use plastic problem. Uh, this part of the world, you know, five out of the top ten uh, leading polluting countries uh, are in Southeast Asia. So Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, so uh, it's it's a real life issue, and but I, I think the solution comes from not being overly dogmatic one way or the other. So, you know, come back to the bushfires in Australia. If you synthesize all the facts, there is an element of climate change because, you know, for sure that the world is getting warmer. And, but that said, there was also a practical issue in that uh, backburning of the shrub had been banned, I think, for over five years. So the shrub had grown very large uh, across the Australian bush. And from what I understand, the ban on burning shrubs, which the Aboriginals used to do, you know, to, to manage the bushfire risk, you know, centuries ago, that ban was partly driven by uh, wanting to appease the green lobby. So, oh. uh, so yeah, so that, that, you know, if you think about it, the confluence of those two things has created this, this, inferno massive inferno and at its worst it's you know it's dogma on both sides that uh creates this unintended consequence it's like it's like watching air crash investigation right you know it's it's a series of things that that leads to an accident um and in this case you know perhaps it's an element of dogma or hubris on both sides that have coalesced to create this issue well in in what role does you know leadership play in that? I, we think about this all the time, um, uh, and I really like your example there with the with the shrubs. There's plenty of examples to think about in terms of whether you said single use. Definitely, I think that's the problem. Whereas just plastic should not be looked at as a horrible product. Correct. Um, We look at food, um, putting pesticides on plants. Wow, what a great invention to feed all these families now. We can support a ton of people, yet it's ruining the environment. You know, there's pros and cons to everything, and there's not always one answer to them all. Just like there's not always one answer to your definition of a real leader. I always ask that question. But, Kev, you said the first thing that you did when you came into that organization is we need to, sh- to shock the culture. We need to change the, the leadership as a leadership team. Um, how important is leadership's role in these big time, long-term decisions? It is absolutely paramount. Uh, and uh, that's really interesting you, 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 how you frame that, you know, big time, long-term decisions. So I, I think, uh, you know, a key element of leadership is is being able to have very long-term horizons, uh, particularly in the context of trying to solve a problem that's, that's large, that's been around for a long time, such as, you know, plastic pollution in Southeast Asia, because that's all about changing mindsets as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the moment, on that specific issue, we're, we're very near ground zero in terms of changing mindsets in the region. Um, but the, 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 the long-term vision from my experience, it's, uh, you know, enough sparkets, uh, et cetera, uh, that, that's rare. That's increasingly being, you know, uh, you know uh, 
being myopic is and, and short term is is more the norm now rather than being long term uh, from a mindset perspective. Uh, but if you have a long term mindset, the challenge for a leader is how do you motivate, galvanize a team to buy into that vision and to support it and to stick with it and to be fellow overcomers, if you will, because for sure there will be lots of challenges along the way. Is there uh, some, I mean, you were mentioning like cultures with the disabilities, like that's something I had no idea about and no clue uh, that people treated people like that in, in that part of the, the, the world. Uh, culturally, people have different perceptions everywhere. And one, like one solution might work in some, in the Congo and Africa, but may, may not work in a similar setting in the Dominican Republic. Uh, how do you approach different cultures and is there a naiveness amongst, uh, you know, the popular, the popular votes or people who may not understand other cultures in terms of, um, uh, how we can actually implement market driven solutions? Does that make sense? Is that a, I feel like I kind of phrased that poorly. No, I understood it, uh, very clearly. And, uh, again, you know, a, a very good question and, uh, everything has to be contextualized, you know, for, you know, for local market uh, nuances. And, uh, you know, whilst you can have very large addressable market solutions like, you know, Facebook and Airbnb have created um, that are ubiquitous, you know, across cultures. Mm. Even if you take another example of McDonald's, you know, McDonald's in, in every country will have, you know, different types of products that are contextualized for local taste. Um, and uh, so in the context of impact and building businesses and, you know, and, and let's take uh, an environmental business that uh, that aims to solve the one-time use plastic problem. And, and I like what you said before that, uh, that that debate has, I think, become too much about plastic is evil. Plastic is not evil. Plastic has been a massive enabler of you know uh, human society development. It's it's the one-time use plastics, mm-hmm. and it's what happens to that in terms of being flushed into or just discarded into oceans, etc. So, you know, culturally, one of the issues in the Philippines, for example, is that because Society has been very poor for, you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, the likes of Unilever, who who are, you know, really changing how they do things, which is fantastic, in the past have created what's called single-use sachets so that, you know, the ordinary Filipino family in the provinces can go to their local shop and just buy these tiny sachets of shampoo or soap or whatever as opposed to a you know large bottle which which they can't afford. So you know people like Unilever, Procter and Gamble have have kind of unitized that to suit local market conditions. The adverse unintended consequence that we're seeing now is this one-time use single plastic uh, sachets are just everywhere. You know in the waters, in the rivers, etc. Uh, so that that is a specific nuance to the problem that needs solving. For this market, that's not so much the case, say in Vietnam, where they don't have single-use sachets so much. 
so yeah, local market nuances and cultural nuances is is critical, and it's it, it's a bit of a trap for young players, especially in this part of the world, Southeast Asia, where uh, there's you know there's uh, different countries, and Indonesia is not the same as the Vietnam. Vietnam's not the same as Myanmar. Uh, and you know, really understanding that uh, is 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 critical. When you're working with social enterprises or companies in your portfolio, you're helping them out. You're raising their funds, reorganizing their capital structure. How important is intention, and how important is vision uh, versus the numbers? Yeah. So to me, numbers is the output and if you're looking at numbers to make decisions off i would say you're already behind you know the eight ball so there's a, there's, there's a slide that we have uh, uh which which is just a one pager and it, it breaks down uh how you know we look at uh, we look at businesses so you know the traditional way is what what we call hindsight analytics you know, so companies prepare weekly or monthly reports and then you kind of pour over them and you go, oh, okay, this is what happened last month or last week. Um, and there's some utility to that, you know, in terms of the hindsight analytics. The world's, you know, moved more and more towards uh, insight analytics. So tools such as Power BI, Tableau, give you, you know, more real-time information, you know, in terms of the key numbers, critical numbers of, of your business. Where we want to go is foresight analytics. So being able to predict, and this is getting into the realms of data science, machine learning, AI, so really mining the data. And in the context of our education business, for example, the holy grail for us would be to, uh, to be able to help a student visualize their future and go, this is, this is how the future of work, and, and let's take IT as an example. You know, IT as a profession arguably has the shortest half-life in terms of relevance of your knowledge because things change so fast. Hmm. So if we could help a student visualize and say, you know, in 10 years or in five years' time, cybersecurity is going to be 10 times bigger than it is and there's going to be a job shortage, you know, blockchain engineers are in demand. Uh, based on your skills and your experience and your learning to date, this is what we think you should study in order to strive for that, uh, for, for a pivot to that sort of role. So that's, that's what we've started to work on in the context of our education business. So when, when you talk about vision, there's vision at... I guess uh, at, at, at an enterprise level, vision can be better informed with predictive analytics, you know, leveraging AI, machine learning, data science. Uh, and uh, what was the other one you had? So there's vision and something else. Intentionality. Intention. So intention is intention is the start of everything, right? And and the numbers are, as I said, a you know a byproduct. Uh, our intention with respect to how our education business impacts is if we can enable our students to visualize their future and to capture it in a pragmatic way. Um, if we do that, the numbers will follow. Mm. So 
uh, we're very different in that respect. You know, we've we've very much morphed since Arowana first started in 2007. Back then, we were very hindsight analytics focused. You know, very spreadsheet focused, very numbers focused. Whereas now, it's a much more holistic uh, uh, approach, uh, driven by the intention or, or the purpose, as we as we would put it. I like that a lot, and and I I too just try to break them down like companies down like that as well like versus the bottom line i mean there's the triple bottom line like people planet profit that people look into but i find so fascinating kev is like the vision and then the operating system and then the impact that they create so for instance your example your vision you want to uh uh, help these kids have a better education to give them or find a career that matches their needs. The operating part of that is finding the market needs for them, developing the skills that they can have. And the impact is kind of what you alluded to earlier was transforming those lives and the results yeah. follow with that. And I think that's a great model um, to do so. What do you tell companies that are have been looking at numbers for years, for decades, who are used to this, who have been taught this, what do you tell these people who might see you as a, as a lunatic on the outside? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I get a lot of that already. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah I'm, I'm used to that in terms of being thought of as a, as a lunatic and, you know, what the hell is he doing? What the hell's Arowana up to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, frankly, I don't care. Uh, so I, I guess... The answer to that is is at two levels. So number one, if you know, if the culture of a business has been too overly focused on the bottom line, then and would we would say that, you know, is that a cultural fit for us? Because to try and re-engineer that culture to what we are, you know, it, you know, on average from from my experience, culture takes at least three years to to transform. And when you try and transform an absolute for-profit motive above all else, I think it's it's really difficult. And actually, we've we've had that issue internally with our asset management business, where you know, unfortunately, we've had uh, leaders in the past within that business who were, you know, all all that mattered was was the money. And and let's take an extreme example so that that everyone would know about Boeing. You know, yeah. You know, I um, I fly a lot, so. I religiously, you know, I'm even on a pilot's forum, you know, tracking what's what's happening. And, you know, so I, I knew not to fly the 737 MAX two years before things happen. Um, but if you take Boeing, you know, the culture that it manifested was clearly one that focused on short-term earnings and money above all else, which led to cutting corners um, and, uh, you know, there's that old saying, if it's not Boeing, I'm not going. That doesn't apply anymore. So, yeah. you know, uh, so that that's, to me, that's an extreme manifestation. So, you know, a, a business like Boeing at a much smaller level for, for us, we would struggle to want to partner with or invest with because that, that involves completely re-engineering the culture. And typically, when there's an over overt for profit motive, that that kind of goes hand in hand with short termism or you know being myopic, and it's inconsistent with sort of a long term business building ethos. Uh, so yeah, so that that's at one level. You know, I think depending on the degree, we would struggle to 
engage and partner and or invest in such a business uh, because the culture would be too hard to transform. Uh, and then secondly, uh, at a practical level, and you know this happens with all our businesses now that uh, typically, again, the, the focus has been on hindsight. You know, what, what did the business do? What does the Excel spreadsheet say? Hmm. And migrating that to uh, embracing insight and then foresight analytics, you know, that, that can be challenging uh, because you, you know, you ch- it, it's change management, right? You know, and that's, that's always difficult. Um, at, at an extreme level, we, we had a situation where one of our CEOs, when I brought up AI with him, I said, hey, there's these great... Um, tools we can use to drive efficiency and, you know, robotic process automation. And I got an email back from him half an hour later with a link to articles saying how Singularity would, you know, basically wipe out humanity and Terminator 2. Uh, if we if we, if we we enable AI, Terminator 2 will, will become reality. So that was, you know, an extreme version of change management, if you will. Well, I have that conversation all the time. Is technology a tool or a weapon? Uh, will singular will a singularity happen? A lot of people think it will, uh, but I have the standpoint of you know, AI is more here to help us versus than harm us. Uh, but it's definitely in the hands of a lot of different people uh, who are yeah. in, in control. Well, we're, we're blessed to have. Uh, uh, have you watched? You've obviously watched James Bond movies. Yes. Yeah. So Q, you know the character Q, who's the yeah. kind of the um, the scientist, if you will. So we're we're fortunate enough to have the real life Q on our advisory board. Okay. Uh, his his name is Hugh, but I call him Q. Yeah. <laughs> and Love Hugh it. is um, uh, Professor Hugh is one of the world's leading AI robotics, you know, automation uh, experts and, and thought leaders. And, um, until last year, he was, um, chief scientist for the ministry of defense in the UK. Oh, wow. Oh, submarines, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'd love, love to uh, have him on too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we, we can organize that. No problem. That's and, uh, but his, his view is that singularity will not happen in our lifetime. Okay. Uh, he would know. Yeah. So we're safe from Arnold for the time being. Well, there's there's something about, I mean, just to go back and bring this full circle, we, we started off with resiliency and having that patience to wait things out in a long time. You were mentioning how these businesses have these cultures and what's it going to take for these cultures to transform? time and and generations and education and Larry Fink's new newsletter that came out, you know, 63% of millennials believe that the purpose of business is to improve society. Will those people go into the workforce with that intention? We don't know. So the question I have for you is, uh, what lie, if your whole impact thesis is transforming lives, what lives do you hope uh, are transformed uh, by the time uh, you're, you're uh, you know, 10 feet underground. Yeah, 10 feet underground. that's your oh, style. My, my, uh, my, my goal in that regard, uh, Kev, is to be uh, have my ashes uh, thrown over the, the, the football pitch of the team I support. There we go. <laughs> nice. 
Yes, uh, but uh, yeah, in, in terms of lives, you know, and, and I guess I'm, I'm going to use a sporting analogy here. Uh, you know, the great coaches of, of any great franchise often talk about how, you know, they get a real kick out of taking a kid who perhaps no one saw the potential in uh, and, you know, mentoring or coaching them to, uh, uh, to, to be a you know superstar in in whatever sport they're in, and I've I've been fortunate in that regard to have had a few people come through our ecosystem that you know they've really flourished, and um, and you know they they've been outsiders or they've been neglected or uh, you know they, they just perhaps don't fit the mold of what people would consider to be a successful profile initially, and if you look in this part of the world, there are so many people like that. Uh, and uh, when I get asked, you know, who, who are the leaders that inspire you? I, I, I say, actually, it's it's those that are ordinary human beings at the bottom of the pyramid. So, you know, a friend of mine who does some social work in the Philippines uh, sent me a picture two weeks ago of a four-year-old girl uh, in the southern part of the Philippines. So her job is to help uh, row a canoe that ferries people across a river. She's the one. And, you know, when, when I saw this video of her that my friend sent, it was like, wow, this girl is a leader. She's got massive potential, but she's got all these circumstances against her. So particularly with the education business, and that's what we like about it, if we're able to uh, infuse that into you know society across the board in the Philippines. That has a multiplicative effect, not not just on the individual but their families as well. Mm. Uh, so that's what I would you know really get a kick out of seeing that um, you know if our business here flourishes uh, and uh, kids get educated and you know they get better jobs, uh, their families. Get better houses, homes. It's it's enabling the opportunities that they otherwise would not have had. Uh, that's that's beautiful, Kev. Uh, that exponential impact, uh, transforming yeah. those lives, the resiliency, all great traits of leadership. What's your definition of a real leader? A real leader is unbreakable. and seize opportunities where others see problems. Yeah, that, that would be a real leader for me. Man, I, I knew I liked you, Kev, keeping it short and simple. <laughs> we love that. We love that. Well, uh, we just want to appreciate you coming back on the Realtors Podcast today. Uh, Kev, it's been a pleasure. Learned a lot, uh, not only about Arowana, uh, but uh, your idea of impact, transforming lives, examples of transforming lives. Threw in a couple sports references today. Uh, there, there's a great analogy between leadership on the field and off the field, how you can 
apply those same principles to a business setting. Cultures, what are the differences? Uh, intention, what's the, the hubris and what type of humility uh, do these organizations and us as humans have to have before we take on a problem? A lot impacted and compacted uh, into this conversation today. So I just want to thank you for your time again. Uh, for Kevin Chin, the founder and CEO of Arowana, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be unbreakable, see opportunities where there are problems and always folks keep it real thanks kevin thanks for your good work take care see you man all right everyone and if you made it this far in the episode today we just want to say thank you for supporting the real leaders podcast if you aren't subscribed yet make sure you hit that subscribe button and be notified of future releases like this episode if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more impact leaders like kevin Go online right now, folks. It's free. It's real-leaders.com slash impact-awards. Enter in your email and you're going to be receiving a free special edition uh, with all 100 impact companies, as well as a coupon to get 25% off a Real Leaders subscription. Again, folks, that's real-leaders.com slash impact-awards. Go on there and get to know the 100 top impact companies. And that's it from us, our real leaders. We hope you enjoyed.